Either Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. And of course, this week, it can't be anything more than the coronavirus Switzer Show. How are you, Paul Ricard? Good afternoon, Peter. Yes, I guess uh, all we can talk about is COVID-19. You would would use the technical term. To us normal people, it's the coronavirus, and it really is starting to really... Can I say piss me off? Because it is. It's starting to piss me off. Well, I'd like to talk about something different, Peter, but from a financial point of view, we just have to because uh, so much of our financial future depends on how the virus plays out and how quickly the world can find its way back to a recovery. So, and it's the containment cost that's really hurting the economy and the stock market. Yep, and so much has changed so quickly. We've seen such a reaction in the stock market and the credit markets too. Don't yeah. forget, it's not just the stock market here. We're now seeing the property market, Peter. I wrote last week about house prices were set to fall. I said, sell your house last weekend if you wanted to. Now they're banning auctions and so forth. Mm. Uh, you know, that's it, you don't get a reaction in one market without a reaction in other markets. And people think that, you know, the stock market is just so much more transparent, but there is a flow-on effect to every other market. So mm-hmm. it is going to impact the prices of all assets. And the question the markets have is, well, when do we know that it's all over and what's the recovery going to be? Is it going to be a V-shape or a U-shape or, you know, maybe more an L-shape for a while? Yeah. Who knows? And that's, uh, what, that's what's puzzling markets. Yes, right. That. And I think the vital, the vital story is going to be around the virus statistics or data. And our first guest, Christopher Joy, who is the founder of Coolabar Capital Investments, normally just uses all his research team to to watch the financial markets. But now he's watching virus data right around the world, creating curves, and he's looking for down the curve to roll over and start coming off the ball. As, a, as a, a numbers junkie like you, Paul, you're loving the data. He's well, we, all, we, we, we knew Chris was super smart. We've never... I call him the smartest guy in the room. <laughs> so does but, he. He calls himself that. <laughs> but uh, look, this is really insightful what, what Chris has to say. What are the conditions? And yep. I reckon if there's one guy in Australia who is probably right on top of this... Yep. Uh, uh, it's probably Chris. And the irony yeah. is he's not just into the COVID virus. He's into a few other things like <laughs> shark watching. So we'll, right. we'll, it's a, it's it's a great interview. <laughs> we actually let him go on longer. He squealed at the beginning when I said he got 10 minutes. We ended up giving him more than 20. But the stuff he's talking about is critically important to the coronavirus. And I also should throw in, Chris was advising the Prime Minister and the Treasurer on Thursday before the stimulus package. He is regarded very highly, and what he has to say, I think everyone should listen to. Our next guest is Glenn Keyes from Aspen Medical. He actually created this business, former uh, military officer, um, and his company goes into the troubled spots of the world. It's a medical company. It it was there for Ebola and and, uh, all the other major illnesses we've seen in the world in, in recent times. But he's actually setting up the respiratory 
veterinary clinics around Australia for the coronavirus, and what he has to say should not be ignored as well. These are these sort of portable mini hospitals. Not not, not mini hospitals, but mm. they're going to be testing centres and doing all sorts of things. Even drive-throughs like McDonald's. Drive-throughs. So I, I didn't... I heard about the announcement mm. some weeks ago, Pete. Mm. I didn't know that uh, Aspen was doing it. But, yeah. look, they've got, they've got a huge job because the emergency departments and other parts of you know ICUs want to deal just with the most serious yeah. of patients. Intensive care units for yep. people who don't know what I... Uh, well, I, I, I've, got a, I've got a daughter who works in ICU, yeah. so I, I can... I you can know use, everything, Pete. I could use the acronym, right? <laughs> yeah. I, know that, I know that you find that a little... Uh, oh, yeah, because I'm a normal person. I'm not an abnormal person like you, but that's why I have you beside me. I like abnormality. Yeah, anyway, what he's got to say is also really interesting. I think it's a, and it's, he's, a, he's a great example of, a, of an Australian really coming to the party. Oh, yeah. They won a Telstra Business Award. He was a ACT's Australian of the Year. This is a very, very important Australian with a really important job to do. And then we have a Bond player, Brad Dunn of Daintree Capital, on how he's playing the coronavirus. And, Paul, most people you know, know the stock market's in trouble, but the bond market's had a few problems as well, hasn't it? Yeah, and we all probably have exposure to the bond market. We're probably not quite as aware we do, but through our superannuation funds, of yep. course, they invest in fixed income securities. And not just governments who issue bonds, but lots of major companies uh, and, and you know, have to borrow and they issue bonds to borrow and uh, or corporate bonds, we call them. And uh, this market's also been through some tough times because, you know, in an environment where people get scared, uh, the, the first reaction is, well, you know, for any bondholders, will I get my money back? Yeah. And, of course, that has an impact on the pricing of those bonds. So uh, working out how the, the top guys in the market are playing this uh, this particular crisis yeah. in from the bond side as opposed to the equity side, uh, there's also some great insights in that. Yeah, and that's exactly why we're talking to uh, Brad Dunn. So that's the show. Without any further ado, let's go to the great Chris Joy of Coolbar Capital Investments. Well, if there's one question everybody wants to know, and only a few people in the world would probably have the right answer, is this coronavirus threat, will it be over sooner than we expect or will it drag on, say, for six months or even longer? And the guy I go to when I want to get answers to this sort of question is Chris Joy, the founder of Coolabar Capital Investments. Chris, thanks for coming on the program. Thank you very much for having me, Peter. Now, the reason why I wanted to talk to you is that, you know, you're a you're a bond fund guy. You have a bond fund business, but you've taken basically all your pointed headed intelligent people who are usually researching money market type stuff, and they're tracking the coronavirus. Is that true? Yeah, mate, that is very true. We are tracking every infection and every fatality globally across every individual uh, country with 15-minute live updates. And then we've also built forecasting models so we can basically estimate, depending on the intensity of the containment regime that governments apply, uh, when we think the infections will peak and start decelerating. Yeah. Now, why would you – I know why you'd do it – for one reason, you just want to prove how smart you are that you can actually do it. <laughs> but I also know you do it. <laughs> I know you're actually doing it so you can make money. So explain to my audience how you eventually make money out of something like this. Yeah, mate, that's a um, that's a very good question. So uh, you know, obviously, a key inflection point or what we call regime change in markets is going to be when we finally. Uh, see the back of this dastardly devil that is the coronavirus. Um, and so what we're trying to understand is 
when is that turning point? Um, and we hypothesize that turning point might be when the infection rates start declining dramatically in the United States, which is obviously the world's largest economy. Um, I think it's also important that we see declining infection rates in some of the key European economies, namely Italy, France, Spain, and the UK, and Germany. We have um, some clear evidence of containment in China and South Korea, and also to a lesser extent, or depending on how you look at it, a greater extent, Singapore, Hong Kong, and other nations that I think idiosyncratic and cultural reasons, most um, commonly that they've been impacted by SARS, that they were better prepared um, to uh, fight this battle. But I think that when the markets can look through the virus, when they think the worst of the virus is behind them, um, I think we might see some more optimism. But can I just say, Peter, that's not the only regime change that we're seeking to identify. We are also of the view um, that there have been several others. The first has been the advent of what we were forecasting since late February, and that is uh, unrestricted quantitative easing by central banks, so basically central banks buying everything Mm -hmm. under the sun, and we have now seen that from the RBA, the Fed, the ECB, and the Bank of England. Mm. A second important regime change has been absolutely full-bottle fiscal stimulus from governments all around the world. Now, we're still missing that in the United States. They have not yet agreed their fiscal package. Originally, Trump was going to do $2.5 billion, then $8.5 billion, then it was like $400 billion, $800 billion. Now we're talking about $2 trillion. The equity market is very, very nervous about it, uh, and the absence of any resolution between the Democrats and the Republicans in the US um, has given the market some connections. But I believe in the next day or two we will get a resolution on that $2 trillion stimulus program in the US, and I think the markets will be comforted by that cushion. Um, Another key regime change is, do we wait for a vaccine in circa, I guess, 10 months' time? Um, Or are we potentially going to get what are called antiviral drugs and more specifically hydroxychloroquine? That could be a solution, a panacea to kill the virus. And I can talk a lot more about hydroxychloroquine, which President Trump has been tweeting about and promoting in his press conferences over the last few days, if you want to. Of course. All this... this this panoply of events could all um, have a decisive impact on impact on markets, and that's why we are studying them so intently yeah. and tracking this information real time. Uh, now, oh, I should I ask a really dumb question, Chris. Yeah, don't ask me that, what, what that word was. Because yeah, I'm going to ask panoply. Is yeah, that, panoply. Is that five or four, just the definition? That's of panoply? a great word, Chris. And by the way, I should say to everyone: if Chris uses any word you don't understand. He uses it so you won't understand. This is something he's always done. He doesn't know how smart he is compared to a normal person. And so as a consequence, I always have to sort of decode him. But he's, once, you, once you decode him, there's some really good stuff there. Go on, Chris. Okay, I don't, I don't well, answer, Chris, because well, I only count of four. So uh, I'm, I'm curious if it really does mean five. But anyhow. Yeah, so... Um uh, according to the Oxford Dictionary, apparently means... <laughs> Which uh, you swallowed as a young is, child. <laughs> he swallowed an Oxford Dictionary as a child. Let, let him finish, <laughs> no, uh, It means an extensive or impressive collection, a splendid display. Um, so, uh, yeah, but... Um, My word for know, the day. I, I actually... I, I would like to rebut your assertion that I'm uh, loquacious and superstitious. <laughs> oh, uh, the fact you use the word loquacious proves you're loquacious. What about, what about, what about, what about supercilious, mate? Oh. Um, so uh, I, I, I'm actually very, very good 
uh, distilling down into plain English uh, complex concepts mm. that can be digested in um, you know user friendly bites. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so that that's why we're we're tracking that information. What was your next question, mate? Well, the next question is: Do you believe the possibility of a vaccine, or, or uh, what was the word you use for what a- any vaccine? Uh, a panacea, a panacea uh, that that Donald Trump is going to be using the antiviral drugs. Yeah. So how how yeah. how confident are you that that might have a, a like a retarding effect on the spread of um, COVID nineteen? Fairly confident, and obviously this is a decisive moment in human history. So. You would not be surprised to learn that I've done quite a lot of due diligence on this matter. Mm. If you want to read, um, I published an essay on the subject uh, with our forecast of the trajectory of the uh, COVID-19 disease. Obviously, COVID-19 is the disease that uh, coronavirus is the virus that, virus that creates the disease. And that's available at coolabarcapital.com. Um, you can see the latest forecast for when we'll see peak infection in the US and Australia. It's also available at LinkedIn, um, and you can get it on live wire. And in that note, I talk extensively about um, what you were referring to. This is an antiviral medicine. Now, so there's two ways to fight a disease like this. One is to get a vaccine, a vaccine and be vaccinated um, and therefore develop immunity. Uh, another alternative approach is to take a medicine that actually kills the virus whilst it's in your system. Um, and there's several medicines that are looking very prospective. Um, the, the first two are called chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. Now, chloroquine, as I'm sure you both know, is an anti-malarial drug used to fight malaria. Uh, it's been around for 40 years. Um, it's a fairly old drug. It's you, know, you can get it at the chemist. You know, cheap, standard fare. Uh, it, it can be a little toxic if you take it um, in excessively large quantities. Mm. And then hydroxychloroquine is a synthetic derivative of that drug. I'm sure you're also aware the Chinese march showed that both chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine kill coronavirus, and I mean stone cold kill coronavirus in vitro. And in vitro means in the test tube. Mm. Now, as it turns out, there are now uh, up to I think 10 different clinical trials using these drugs. And the preliminary results from the trials have been very encouraging. To quickly rattle through them, now in China, the standard medication that is prescribed for anyone with coronavirus is chloroquine. Mm. And there's very strong results. Uh, in Paris, they've been using hydroxychloroquine plus a uh, antibiotic for the upper respiratory tract. Yes, so no. Um, I, can't, I can't really understand what you're saying. Yeah, it's, uh, he's, he's mumbling, Chris. It's, so just yeah, carry on. It's 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 a it's a it's a, 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 a mirror's off again. Peter, yeah. just let Chris okay. talk. Okay, <laughs> keep going, Chris. I'll, I'll never try and become medical again. Go on. So, so the Parisians have in in, in France, uh, one of the top uh, infectious disease experts in the world has run a clinical trial using hydroxychloroquine for 40 patients who had coronavirus or COVID-19. And um, he had spectacular results. Basically, all the patients who took it um, you know, did amazingly well. Uh, in the US, there's also uh, reports from a hospital that uh, tried hydroxychloroquine on 100 patients, also with spectacular results. There's a third drug uh, that you've probably heard of called uh, remdesivir, and that's produced by Gilead Sciences, and that is also very effective. The problem with remdesivir, so it kills the virus as well, is it's intravenously applied and it's a newer drug. Hydroxychloroquine is a drug that's in pharmacies today. 
cheap, uh, and it's used to fight uh, autoimmune disease and rheumatoid arthritis. So the results are very, very encouraging. The FDA in the US has approved it for compassionate use. They are rolling it out through all US hospitals, and the uh, pharmaceutical producers are scaling up production. This all begs the question, why have you guys never heard of hydroxychloroquine before you know, we spoke? No, 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 we have. And, uh, I've actually read about it with... Um, uh, Donald Trump, and by the way, I've got that thing. It's a zithromycin. You put hydro. Okay. You put that. That's that's what you have with it, and that actually. Yeah. So I, I know I couldn't pronounce it. You don't it, need to impress me, Switzer. You don't need to impress me. I know, but I, I'm not as dull as you like to make out, Chris. You know, Chris. Can I um? Can I um? Just uh, just help the audience here a little bit because yes. I'm I I, I I get your confidence. You're somewhere between normal these, and abnormal. You yeah. Well, well, I get this. Your confidence in these antiviral drugs mm. uh, and the forecasting you've done and the fact that uh, obviously this is available on uh, Coolabar. Capital.com.au, if I've got that Great address. Plug. Yep. I don't Great know why, why is he plugging his but, own website? But I, it's unusual, uh, but go on. But, uh, <laughs> dot com. Dot com. <laughs> okay, sorry. But look, just bringing it back so that for uh, our listener and also in terms of um, it sounds pretty op- optimistic in some ways. I mean, so are you thinking, you know, we're going to get out of this a little bit sooner than perhaps the, the, the media is making out? Yeah, so this is the puzzle, right? So I figured this out about a month ago that there were antiviral solutions, but here's the puzzle. If I was right and there are antiviral solutions, why wasn't anyone in the world really talking about them? Mm. That was puzzle number one. Um, and, and when I started figuring through it, the, the following thoughts occurred to me. So the first thought was, if ScoMo got up and said, actually, we've got a drug, it's called hydroxychloroquine, you can get it at your local chemist, and guess what, it kills the virus almost you know, all the time, what would have happened? Everyone would have partied like it was 1999, and we would have had Bondo Beach all over again. And unfortunately, the infection rates, or the r naught, which is the reproduction rate, currently estimated at approximately 2.28. Um, that is, you know, if you get it, you infect 2.28 other people. Mm-hmm. That would have gone through the roof, mm-hmm. right? And the other problem is you would have got to run on the drug. Mm-hmm. Now, since Trump has done this, we've had both those things. You can't, all US and Australian pharmacies have run out of the drug. It's been a run on the drug. And there's actually only finite production capacity, right? because it's currently only used for lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. So there's not actually much in stock. So they need a month or so to rev up production, mm-hmm. and that will then facilitate more broad-based distribution. But the second point is, what you do want to do is you will need to contain your population to um, so-called you know, flatten the curve and reduce the r naught, such that the people who are actually hospitalized, hospitalized are approximately um, 19% of all people are sort of either severe or um, critical cases. And um, those folks who need the drugs, you want that number to be as small as possible. So the game theory here, I think, when policymakers and health experts have thought about this is, firstly, we haven't actually run full randomized clinical trials. They are currently in train, but I believe the results are very good. Secondly, if we start talking about this, there's going to be a run of the drug and we won't have anything, any for use in the hospitals for the real-time patients. Thirdly, we still want people to practice social distancing. We still want them to stay at home and you know, not take their kids to school, whatever the case may be, in different countries, um, such that we can minimize the, um, uh, the, the total number of population infections. So I think the approach they've taken is quite reasonable, but we are definitely now getting a lot of momentum around this drug in the US. I don't think it's a perfect panacea. Um, I think it's a mitigant, and I think what it means, if, if what I believe is to be correct, it means that we go through hard containment for about a month, and then we go to mitigation, which is what the Chinese have effectively done. They shut down Wuhan, they shut down Hubei, they shut down various cities, 
They got it under control. They're now prescribing chloroquine for all patients in in China um, as a, a standard prescription. And once they have it under control, um, they can go back to you know, normal life, albeit practicing you know, proper social distancing just while we um, have the drug still in that community and we don't yet have vaccines. So that's kind of where I think we're at. The, the crisis is not going to disappear. We are going to have lockdowns. People are going to lose their jobs. We have a big increase in the unemployment rate, a very, very strong uh, sort of negative GDP growth uh, for a short period of time, but I think there is a light at the end of, end of the tunnel. Okay. On that positive note, Chris, we might just move on because I know Peter's got a whole lot of interesting questions at the end. Yeah, but sure. But about sharks, I, which, and I don't understand those, but I'll leave that. I want to talk about banks. Now, I know you're an absolute guru in, in the bond market. Without getting too technical, uh, you know, we've heard hear terms, terms like bail-in and bail-out and all these other things. Just, uh, just, just how safe are Australian banks? Well, um, I'm glad you asked me that question because I was actually looking at um, moments ago the international comparison of our bank's capital uh, ratios versus other banks around the world. So the capital ratio for the uninitiated is simply the equity ratio or how much equity they have on their balance sheet compared to their assets. So the way to think about that is um, it's similar to the equity that you might have in your house. If you've got 10% uh, equity, so a 10% deposit, you basically leverage 10 times, you've got 90% debt, 10% equity. Um, the four major banks have the highest equity capital ratios, um, pretty much of their peers globally. CBA ranks number one, according to CBA, of all the largest banks in the world. So they're carrying the least leverage uh, and they have the highest levels of risk. I think the things that make the banks especially safe are uh, the following factors. The first is um, they have government guaranteed bank deposits. So the, the government, that is about 60% of all their funding, so they get 60% of all their money from deposits. Mm-hmm. Those deposits aren't going to run away because the government's guaranteeing the safety of those deposits. The second thing the banks can do, which is quite unusual, is if they ever get into a bit of a bind and nobody wants to lend the money beyond the depositors, they can run to the RBA and basically borrow as much money from the RBA as they want. So right now the RBA is lending them money at a cost of about 0.3% annually. Um, via something called repo, which is just short-term loans that are secured by assets that the, the bank posts as collateral with the RBA. Uh, so these are loans typically one month, three months, six months, up to 12 months, but they, they're very, very cheap loans. Um, and, and, and that's what people might call sort of lender of last resort type status, is that right? Correct. I mean, that's a fairly wonky central banking characterization. But yes, the central banks were first created, uh, well, the Federal Reserve was first created to avoid banking crises, to be a lender of last resort to what um, Bajahot would say is uh, a liquid. A solvent bank, but a liquid bank. And the essential fragility of banks before the advent of government guarantees and central banks is because they are borrowing short, so we're giving them an actual deposit, and they're then taking our money and making a 30-year loan. So they run something called called an asset liability mismatch. Anywho, so they've got government guaranteed deposits. They can borrow as much money as they want super cheaply from the RBA. The RBA has just introduced a new program to let them borrow three-year money, so they can borrow three-year loans from the RBA uh, at a cost of just 0.25%. Unbelievable. Um, and then the government is also investing in the bonds that they issue. These are 
uh, home loan-backed bonds called residential mortgage-backed securities. The government has committed $15 billion to purchasing those bonds, um, basically to ensure that the banks have low uh, borrowing costs. And then when the banks then on-lend that money to businesses, SMEs and households, they can uh, charge them equally low borrowing costs. Because if the rest of the world wants to pay, wants to force, sorry, uh, the major banks to pay extremely high interest rates to borrow, what happens is the, unfortunately, the banks have to turn around and charge those higher high interest rates onto their customers. So banks are basically too big to fail. Um, they are government guaranteed. They are protected species. They're pretty much the safe, or I would say they are the safest businesses in Australia. The safest businesses in Australia. Okay, well, thanks, Chris. We'll get, I'll go back to Peter now for some yeah. more technical questions about sharks. <laughs> yeah, well, well now, before sharks, because you are the shark when it comes to the the stock market and the financial markets, you, you just you, you go... you. Roam around the the, the, the sea of financial of, of of finances, and you're looking for things that you can just devour. I want you to very bad analogy. The bottom line is, Chris, when do you think the worst of the stock market and bond market problems will be behind us? One month, two months, or more? Uh, I think that we'll we'll find a bottom in the next few weeks, okay. if not sooner. I okay. think. Um, the key missing link right now is the markets want to know that there's a circa one to two trillion dollar fiscal injection of money from the U.S. Treasury into the U.S. economy to effectively provide a bridge during this air gap in time. So we have this little gap in time, economically and liquidity-wise, between today when everyone's nervous and anxious and worried, and that point in the future when we have vaccines that are basically free and publicly available. Once the vaccines arrive. Problem solved. We can go back to normal. There okay. will be no coronavirus once the, the vaccines are up. Between now and then, circa ten months' time, we need some sort of public support. So we needed the monetary policy support. We're still waiting on the fiscal policy support. And I think that once we get that, um, you know, the markets should should reach a bottom. Certainly, in the markets right now, as we speak, are rallying their asses off because they're very excited about the the, the prospect of a, a U.S. fiscal policy deal being agreed. Okay. Now, next question: the sharks. Why are you? on your weekends, going out to beaches with drones, taking photographs or videoing sharks? You know the way it works, Peter, and maybe it doesn't work this way for you, but during the week, I run $4.5 billion, and I'm trying to maximise the returns that my clients realise. But on the weekends, I need to save lives, mate. And that's what I do in a very altruistic way. So I have a fleet of drones. They have night vision. They have thermal imaging. The drones can fly at approximately 90 kilometers an hour for uh, as far as actually 15 kilometers. Um, now, there are civil aviation regulations that require that you fly the drone within what is known as line of sight, which is about 500 meters. And, of course, I would never, ever dare think of breaching that line of sight. Um, but needless to say that you know, when I do have the time, if I'm not playing basketball with my son, um, if I'm not uh, doing other, involved in any, uh, any other philanthropic endeavours, we uh, send the Coolabar Capital search and rescue drone fleet down to the beaches and I will patrol the uh, ocean looking for great white sharks, bull sharks, um, bronze whalers and have actually recorded prevented quite serious shark attacks, at least according to mm. the assessment of those events. So I think I hold the world record. So, so Chris, you, 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 you take your beaten, okay. your beaten up 1988 Toyota Land Cruiser down to the beach, you roll, you roll out your, your drones and, 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 and is that what you do? Pretty much, yeah. In my, in my body, so I've got a fleet of drones. Fleet of so drones? I, 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 he drives a Porsche. He doesn't drive a, a beaten up Land Rover. 
<laughs> so I have a, a fleet of drones, as I said, there's like a fleet of portions, and, and they also have microphones, and they're, they're special search and rescue drones. So I can actually communicate from the drone to anyone that the drone is looking at. Um, and there's one very famous example where at Wherry Beach down the south coast, there was this monster great white, about five or six metres, and it was actually circling a surfer on a longboard. Yeah. And I saw it in the distance, and I zapped the drone over to him at high speed, um, sort of careened to a halt. And then the, the this monster great white was um, barreling on what we call an attack vector. So he had effectively um, uh, you know, scoped you the, valve, the, the target, mm. and he was heading straight for him. And so I flew the zone uh, the drone in quite close, and then I hit a pre-recorded uh, emergency shark alert, which basically said, shark, 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 evacuate the water immediately. Shark, shark, shark. And um, needless to say, the, the guy who hadn't seen the shark at this point at all, and was literally metres away, uh, got the fright of his life, right. and he spun the board uh, with such ferocity and intensity that the shark itself got a fright because the shark thought it had the yeah. element of surprise, surprise uh, to its advantage. And then it promptly dog-legged right at incredible speed, in fact, uh, and, and raced out to see where it belongs. Uh, and that that's just one example. I've got other examples where, you know, we've uh, had massive bronze whalers, you know, four-metre bronze whalers, uh, heading straight for towards sort of unsuspecting swimmers, and they, you know, the Coolabar Capital Search and Rescue drone has yeah. swept down and like a peregrine falcon yeah. uh, and uh, yeah, saved lives. And that's yeah. what we do, mate. We Chris, run, run Chris, money during the week and save lives on the weekend. Chris, you know, I've got to say, despite the fact that you were very disparaging to to me and what I might do on the weekend. Despite the fact that I was the youngest patrol captain at North Bondi as a young man when, <laughs> when you weren't even even born and one of my patrol members was one Malcolm Turnbull. Apart from wow. my, my contribution to saving lives the old-fashioned way, you are my nomination for Australian of the Year after saving so many people's <laughs> show. Now, Chris Joy, as always, it's a joy to talk to you, mate, and uh, thanks for contributing, and we pray that you're right. Thanks, mate. And that was Chris Joy from Coolabar Capital Investments. And it's time for a word from our sponsor. And as you know, our sponsor is always the Great Switzer Group. And today we want to talk about the Switzer Investment Report, uh, or the Switzer Report as we call it. Uh, because, Paul, you actually came into this year reasonably negative about the stock market, though you weren't expecting a thing called the coronavirus. Yeah, Peter, I, um, I think I don't want to rewrite history. I wasn't super negative, but I did think it was looking, you know, market had a bit more in it, but uh, not probably a market to be putting too much money into. Not so, a 23% rise in market like yeah, last year. Yeah, so look, I mean, and in fact, going back to our event about the uh, how to invest in a mature bull market, we did think it was getting pretty mature. We didn't mm. see the black swan. No. In fact, what's interesting is we, when we started to write about coronavirus, everyone said it was so boring. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the markets just rallied <laughs> in the right. US. So it's not as though this sort of all happened in, in, uh, in February. The coronavirus was with us in January, yeah. um, and the markets peaked, peaked on February the 20th. So yeah. it was four or five weeks into the whole thing had happened. Yeah. A lot of people underestimated yeah. its, its potential impact. And also, I should say for our financial planning clients, I was saying to all of them that we really become a little bit more defensive in March because the US election was coming out and that, uh, the old sell in May and go away often happens. Uh, and so, but once again, the coronavirus completely blindsided me. And uh, 
we have to now concentrate on whether the market's coming back. Yeah, so look, that's a long segue into talking about the Switzer Report. We've got a group of uh, experts. Uh, the Switzer Report we publish on Mondays, Thursdays and Saturdays, plus lots of uh, webinars, seminars, conferences, mm. your questions answered. Uh, you get to hear from the great... And You're in the Switzer uh, Club. The Switzer Club, you get to hear from the great Peter Switzer, uh, yours truly, people like Charlie Aitken, uh, one of the best, smartest guys I reckon in the market in Tony Featherston. Yeah, former editor-in-chief yeah, of the BRW yeah, magazine. James Dunn, plus many others, mm. uh, and uh, all for $397 per annum. So, and and uh, it could be, could be tax deductible for, for well, some Well, for, for, for super funds and accumulation or for personal investors, yeah. uh, tax deductible. Uh, so a great way to stay in touch. And, uh, look, we want to make sure that... Uh, you know, that, that you're getting the best out of your investments. We know a lot of people want to do it themselves. Yeah. What we're trying to make sure is you get the best out you can out of the market for so whatever they, your particular appetite is, right? So how do they apply for that? You go to uh, Switzer Report, all one word. That's with an R and R in the middle, right? just a yeah, Switzer Report. report. The two words together, yeah. uh, .com.au, yeah. and uh, click on the link. You can actually, I think, take out a trial, Peter, yeah. just to see what it's like. You can. Um, uh, and subscribe for three hundred and ninety-seven dollars. What a bargain! It's too cheap. We have to raise the fees, Paul. I think, but then, uh, for, the, for the moment, let's let's do it. Think about <laughs> it after the virus, Peter. That's right. and, when uh, the rebound's happening, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll go easy on our customers in the meantime. Joining us now is an Australian who um, has been an Australian of the year. Um, he's been the co-founder and executive chairman of Aspen Medical. Uh, he's been a, a, a Telstra Business Award winner, and his business gets on the front line of major medical concerns and crises right around the world. Glenn Keyes, thanks for joining us on the Switzer program. Well, thanks so much for the invitation. So, Glenn, all of us are, are worried about two things. One is the coronavirus, and the second thing is the kind of media coverage of it, and we're not sure just how serious it is for Australia. So let me just get, get you to give us your take on the threat of the coronavirus here in Australia. Look, I think that uh, the threat is very, very real. We would not have not only the Australian Department of Health, but other uh, departments of health and the WHO advising us unless it was very real. So it is very real. It is. There is a lot to learn still about this, but there are things that we know that we can practice and do um, around hand washing, around social distancing, around minimising contact that will help the limit uh, to limit and spread this disease. Uh, and the sooner we do that, the sooner we'll be able to get on top of it and then flatten that curve and then move on from there. Glenn, uh, your company is currently, or Aspen Medical, I think is currently involved in setting up some respiratory clinics uh, with, uh, with the Department of Health. Can you just explain how they work and, and what role they're going to play in fighting this crisis? So the government uh, has announced they're rolling out 100 uh, respiratory clinics across the country, and these are being set up in uh, primary healthcare networks around the nation, and they're going to be critical in funneling all of the people that might have respiratory distress in some ways, so they're having trouble breathing, might have runny noses, maybe they've contacted with people who they know have got coronavirus, and they'll be able to funnel them through and test them. Now, it's important that people use those clinics. There's booking methodologies so they can book in so they're not queued there or sitting there with lots of people for long periods of time. 
And they're very structured around how they're being used. And what they're allowing us to do is to check people in these respiratory clinics rather than going into your normal GP clinic and mixing with everybody else who's there for all the other reasons. So these aren't attached to a hospital or a medical centre. They're sort of, you know, drive-in or drive-by or school halls. Just explain sort of physically how do they uh, these clinics operate. So so there's a whole range. The state government has set up um, respiratory clinics in front of hospitals, the uh, various governments have then set up some in front of major GP clinics, so where people would go, large GP clinics. Mm-hmm. So rather than going into those clinics, uh, people go to the respiratory clinic, which is next door, um, and then they can be treated there. Um, and then there are more innovative models like drive-through clinics, where they're just trying to get through volume of people to be driven through, minimise contact, and yet still get the test done. So, so there's a range of models just to suit what we need around the country. So, so when you talk about drive-through, I'm instantly thinking about McDonald's. Um, so how, how does it actually work, Glenn? The, the, the drive-through um, uh, uh, example. So they, you turn up. They are uh, going to register you to check. They've got all your details. Check they've identified you. Find out why you're getting a test. Um, maybe you've been in contact with someone, you've been to one of those countries. Uh, and then, um, you know, after they've done that, then they'll do the testing, uh, nasal swab, for example, uh, and then they'll come up with a methodology where they're going to contact you again when they get the results, mm. and they'll give you advice around self-isolation and what you should do there. Mm. And, and what's the progress? And this is obviously a big logistical exercise to get these set up and staffed and everything that goes with it. What's the progress so far, Glenn? Um, so the government's uh, working really, really closely with uh, GP centres and state and, uh, state and territory governments around the country. Um, they're identifying where they want them to go, um, where they're going to be located, how they're going to roll out. They're doing that around a number of criteria. So they're looking at where's the need. So if they see a spike in certain areas, can we get clinics there? Uh, you've got to have enough space. You need volume. It's no setting, no use setting up one in a clinic where they don't have high volume, but they want to set them up where there's lots of people to go through. So there's a lot of work being done, but it's being done very quickly. Everyone's really cooperating really, really well to get that done. And I think we'll see those start to roll out over the coming time that the Health Minister, I believe, will be making some announcements about dates and times and locations. But but those are coming and they're, they're going to be, you know, exactly the thing we need to start testing and clearing the volume of people that need to be done in the country. Mm. Glenn, because there is a lot of concern about it, and when you look at the numbers, um, I saw a, a recent chart which showed from zero to nine, it's like 0% uh, affected. Then basically from 10 up till about 59, I think it was yeah, it was uh, to forty nine. It was point two percent. To fifty nine, uh, fifty fifty nine was point four. Getting in the sixties, about three point nine percent. But really, the seventies and the eighty year olds, they're the ones who are most at risk. When you when you look at the, the the people who really are at risk, even the younger people, they all correct me if I'm wrong, but they all tend to be people who have either respiratory challenges from the outset, like I guess um, um, you know something wrong with their lungs on the way through, or they have other illnesses like diabetes or whatever. Is that a fair call on the people who in in particular are dying? So, look, the 
it's not surprising that if you've got comorbidities, you've got other things wrong with you, particularly if they're quite severe, um, or you're older, or you've got immunosuppression in your system, that of course you are going to be more susceptible to something like coronavirus. But it's the same with many other things as well. So um, the fitter you are, uh, the, the better chance you have. So no one, I think, is surprised by that as a statement. But certainly in this, the very young, um, there's been very, very low rates of, uh, of infection and certainly death uh, in the very, very young and not surprisingly in the very old, particularly because they've normally got comorbidities. They're not normally very fit. They've typically got compromised respiratory systems for a range of reasons, um, then yes, they're going to be very, very susceptible to this. And that's part of the reason for social distancing, which is around let's minimise the chance of, of passing this to someone else, particularly older people, um, and uh, let's minimise the chance of spreading it, and uh, let's minimise the chance of then picking it up by making sure that we're hand washing and sanitising and and just being aware of those things. And that's where self-isolation's come into to its own as well. So, yes, in general, you're right. The older you get, uh, uh, the more challenging it gets, and I don't think anyone would be surprised by that. But that's why a number of countries have instituted different methodologies about different age groups uh, longer in isolation, but now are expanding out, um, as you've seen in England, for everybody being in a lockdown. Mm. I, I guess the, the big question everyone would like me to ask is, how long do you think a lockdown in Australia is going to be necessary? Like, I'm an optimistic kind of person. I'm hoping after two or three weeks, cafes and pubs will be open again. But from your professional and insightful view on what might happen, what are you thinking? Well, look, I think uh, there's look. There's a lot of good work that's come out about how lockdowns have worked elsewhere in the world. Um, you know, different cultures have taken the definition of lockdown uh, in different views. Um, I think Australians, once they realise the severity of this, will will hear that and will stop seeing the sort of incidents we've seen on beaches and elsewhere. Um, suggestions are from previous examples that two or three weeks seems to look like a good period of lockdown, maybe a little longer. Um, but I think as we do those things and we start looking at the traces of the number of people who are infected, number of people who are turning out into hospital, that will allow us to say, right, does this need to go a little bit longer or have we done enough? Okay. And so this is going to be one of those things as, it, as we go through it, that's when we'll know, right, we're almost there, maybe a little bit longer or yes, we're there, we can turn it off now. And Glenn, just uh, coming back as someone who's um, you ha you have to staff and you've got to find operators and you've got to find people and all the equipment. What are what are some of the, the challenges for your organisation? And how do you you know how do you get the staff confident to want to work mm. in these type of environments yeah. where they're testing? How do they do social distancing yeah. when they have to help? How people? do you social distance for, with your own staff? What what are, what are the sort of ways that that you work on that in terms of preparing for the virus? Yeah, so we've, we've done quite a lot of work already and we've been doing this now for uh, almost a few months now. Um, not only here in Australia, around the world, um, we provided all of the staff that went up to Japan mm -hmm. to run the quarantine program for the, uh, the cruise ship that was up there in, uh, all, for all of their staff um, and we're currently uh, supporting them in San Francisco as well. So we've developed a lot of really tight protocols around 
how they wear their PPE. When they when you get dressed in it, they call it donning. When you take it off, they call it doffing. So donning and doffing your PPE, how to do it to uh, minimise any chance of exposure or infection, uh, making sure you've got all the right equipment, making sure that you're watching people to make sure that they do it correctly and that you don't cut corners. And so um, we've been managing that. Now, you've got to remember... We've had a lot of experience way back to when we did the Ebola crisis Mm -hmm. in 2014. Uh, You know, we had over a thousand staff involved in that program across seven sites in Africa um, with uh, 200 expats and 800 Africans. We didn't get a single staff member infected during that period of time. Now, things continue to evolve and change. So we've got a lot of lessons we learned there that we're bringing over to this. We're learning and taking on board all of the latest uh, um, advice and protocols out of the WHO, CDC, and the Department of Health. And we're using those and then instituting those into the systems for ourselves and our customers on how we roll out for them to do it as well. So a lot of it's just around process, sticking to process, and making sure you do it. And that's why, even down for all of us, the non-clinicians, you know, the advice around how long to wash your hands, how to wash your hands, um, I mean, if, you know, everyone who's listening should go and find the WHO hand-washing video or Aspen's got one out as well, which uses the WHO protocols on how to wash your hands, how long it takes. We do things like that, we're going to minimise our chance of either catching or spreading the disease, and that's what we need to do. So when Boris said sing happy birthday twice, I think he wasn't joking. Is that what you're uh, saying? Absolutely. Yep, and trust me, watch the video on how to wash your hands and you'll sit there and think, God, my hands have been dirty for the last few decades now. (laughs) But, uh, you know, just individually around washing your thumbs, washing your knuckles, the back of your hands, in between your fingers. You know, there's some really good protocols. They're nice and simple. Um, Give yourself a happy birthday message a few times a day and you'll be fine. Okay, Glenn, thanks for coming on the program. You clearly are the, um, the boss of an inspirational business. And uh, I think the Australian Army misses a, a great bloke like you, but you learned a lot when you were in the, the armed forces, didn't you? Oh, look, we, we did, and, and that's rolled into whether we're uh, deploying overseas to help with those cruise ships, whether we're developing the training that we've done for the Department of Health that's rolled out or, or helping with these centres. Um, you know, it's, it's a service that we can deliver, and we're, we're proud and glad that we can do it. Great stuff. Thanks for joining us, Glenn. Thanks so much. Bye. And that was Glenn Keyes from Aspen Medical. What an important business and what a really great Australian. Paul, it's time for a word from our sponsor. And once again, it's the, it's the great Switzer Group. Has is, is there been any books you've been reading lately that well, impressed you? One comes to mind that impressed And I feel a bit humbling us saying that after listening to, uh, to, to Glenn. Yeah, exactly. Right, so I usually keep <laughs> yeah. this plug fairly short, Peter. Yeah. But one book I have been reading, actually read, written by a certain... P. Switzer. Yeah. Uh, With call, help in a superannuation chapter yeah. from one P. Ricker. Uh, a lot of help. Uh, <laughs> more help than the, 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 the forward page makes out. Uh, oh, gee, I didn't know he was so sensitive about that. I'll, I'll go and rewrite bit it. If I rewrite the forward page, it was me. I rewrote every other page. Anyhow, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's Join the Rich Club, uh, and you can get it from a fantastic uh, read for $24.95. You can get it from uh, Switzer's store, singular. Switzer store. I don't know why we didn't have stores. You have two stores. I got one. That's why. Switzerstore.com.au, $24.95. Join the Rich Club. Don't miss out. Yeah. And by the way, 
you might be saying, oh, well, he didn't pick the stock market fall. I show you a chart in there that actually tells you this could be a great time to get in the stock market and ride it up for the rest of your life. At a time when a lot of people are worried about the stock market and other markets, uh, we're talking to Brad Dunn, who's the Senior Credit Analyst at Daintree Capital. Brad, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Peter. Well, why don't you explain to our listeners what Daintree Capital does? Yep. So Daintree Capital is a fixed income manager. So effectively what that is, is we create portfolios of bonds. So um, mainly what's called corporate bonds or bonds that are issued by companies and, and banks and, and financial companies. And we do that without looking at any indices. So we do that by constructing a portfolio only of issuers that we think are worthy to be included in our portfolio. And the other way that we manage our portfolio is a little bit differently is we look at it on what's called a, uh, a cash plus or, a, or an absolute return basis. So our goal is to achieve a, a specified return by buying a, a portfolio of bonds um, subject to managing the risk as, as closely as possible so we can reduce the risk that's involved in investing in bonds. And we've been hearing lately, Brad, that uh, corporate bonds are under a bit of pressure. Can you explain to us why? Yeah, well, it's, 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 fairly, um, it's, it's fairly obvious when you, when you think about it and that corporate bonds are effectively a different type of, of risk asset. So when I say risk asset, I'm talking about you know, assets that can go up and down in value a little bit. Um, but corporate bonds are issued by a lot of the same companies that are listed on the on the stock exchange. So because the, the stock exchange has been having a fairly tough couple of weeks um, with everything that's been happening in the world, uh, you know, health-wise and, and so on, uh, that's obviously spilling through into the corporate bond market as well. So, Brad, just uh, share with us, with us the type of corporate bonds that you invest in. In particular, I think a lot of listeners would be familiar with credit ratings. Just explain about how those two things work together. Sure. So in general, the types of bonds that we invest in are what we would call investment-grade bonds. So an investment-grade bond has a credit rating of triple B or, or higher. So once you go above triple B, you go into A-rated and then double A-rated. And then the highest rating for a corporate bond or, or a bond in general is, is AAA. So a large proportion of our portfolios own investment-grade bonds. And presumably the, uh, the interest return that you get on, on those is, is lower? I mean, as you go, as risk increases, you'd expect to get a higher return. Is that how it works in the bond market? It, it certainly is. But when, when you think about corporate bonds, you have to think about say, a, say a, a, a company and think about the different ways that they can fund themselves. Mm -hmm. So in general, they can either fund themselves by, by equity, by raising uh, equity capital, or they can borrow money either from a bank or from investors via a bond. And the, the important thing to remember is that bonds sit higher up in the, in the capital structure. So they're always going to be treated a little bit, uh, you know, a, a little bit earlier. So they're going, they're going to be paid earlier than, say, equity investors would be via dividends. So it's a very important thing to remember is that uh, corporate bonds are rated higher in the capital structure. Now, now Brad, well, to explain this to just normal people who'd be listening to this program, 
I, I can remember during the GFC, uh, the Channel 7's corporate bonds were yielding about 27%. And I was thinking to myself, gee, that's such a, a good investment. Like, how could free-to-air TV be ever in any trouble whatsoever? And, uh, yeah. yeah, and 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 clearly that bond would have started off at maybe 7 or 8%, but as the fear factor went up, the effective yield also um, also went up as well if you wanted to, um, to, to, to buy that bond or sorry, yeah, sell that bond. Right. Yeah, that, that, that's right. So in, 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 in the world of bonds, um, especially for a bond that has a, a fixed rate of interest, uh, as the, as the uh, yield on that particular bond goes up, its, it's price goes down. So um, generally speaking, that's, the, that's how they work. Mm. And I think at the moment we're seeing, we're seeing a fair bit of that in large parts of the corporate bond market as well because there just simply is so much uncertainty out there at the moment. You know, a, a bond investor looks forward into the future just like an equity investor does. And because there's so much uncertainty at the moment, there's, there's, there's a lot of, you know, price movements and, and yield movements that are, you know, quite hard to explain and, and rationalise as we, as we sit here today. So a lot of investors uh, think when they're getting into fixed income, it's pretty safe. But from what you're saying, there sometimes can be a little bit of risk. Is, is this one of those occasions? Uh, I, I think that's, that's very much the case. I mean, you have to put it in context of, of what risk means. But yeah, that's that's certainly the case in that um, a lot of what a lot of what happens in in the bond market is it's traded in what's called over the counter market. So what that means is that there isn't a um, an exchange similar to the ASX for corporate bonds. Mm -hmm. What it is is that there are only a relatively few, small number of, of of counterparties, and it's you know generally the big four banks and some of the other large banks that have sort of set up operations here and and, and elsewhere that. Hold, hold some inventory of these bonds and buy and sell with people like us as, as fund managers. So there, it, it is a bit of a different market structure. Yeah, but you can, you can see a price. So let, let's come back to what the government is doing because that maybe is helping or not helping your market. So the government's pumping in lots of money. We've got the Reserve Bank doing what's called quantitative easing. What sort of support has that been to the corporate bond market? Yeah. Uh, so I think it supports it in a in a few different ways. I think the first uh, the first point to note is the primary impact of the RBA's quantitative easing measures is in the um, is in the government bond market. So the RBA is committed to buy quite a lot of government bonds, and that's going to manage the interest rates not just at the cash rate levels, but not just at the overnight cash rate, but they've also said that they're going to start managing some of the yield levels. All the way out to a, you know almost like a three-year government bond, so that's that's the first signal that the RBA is trying to send. But the second the second thing that they're doing is by keeping interest rates low and signalling that they're going to be low for an extended period, it's going to make sure that borrowing costs remain low, especially for those good quality borrowers. Now, Brad, I guess this is the question I have for you. How worried are you that what we're seeing now is going to be um, maybe as bad as a GFC, or are you hopeful that you know if the coronavirus um, lockdown of our economy and other economies is shorter than expected, we may well be too negative about what's going on right now? Yeah, 
Well, I'm, I'm personally quite positive in nature, so I can um, I can certainly see the, the the near future being hopefully a little bit more positive than what some of the you know the financial markets and what some of the you know potential you know uh, the, the prognosticators in the, in the news and and whatnot are sort of are, are extending. So I, I can certainly see that um, we, we could be a little negative and sort of one one sort of um, uh, metric to sort of put that into context is that the bond markets at the moment, uh, and I'm, I'm going to refer to the US bond market because it's quite large and quite diverse, it's saying that over the next 12 months or so, with current pricing, it's, assu- it's assuming or estimating that one in eight companies will default on their bonds or, or stop paying their coupons. And to, that, that, that will have never happened in my lifetime or in the, in the history that I've seen of, of the bond market, mm. but while that while that number is a strong headline, it probably needs unpacking a little bit. Yeah, I, I totally agree. One final thing, mate, just talk to us about the flexibility and, and the options that you guys at Daintree Capital have for people who want to invest in bonds. Yeah, sure. So, as, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, one of the ways we structure our portfolio is by not referring to any any indices. So. Mm-hmm. That gives us some flexibility in saying anything that we own uh, that, that we have some concerns about or that we've you know done the work on and we don't believe it's as strong a credit as it was in the past, we have the flexibility to make that decision and to and to sell that well before any issues such as a, a default or a missed coupon or something like that has ever come about. So that's that's the first point. The second thing we can do. Is we can we can use some some ways to manage our exposure to interest rate movement. So in in layman's terms, what that means is we can decide that if we think interest rates are going lower in the in the near future, we can actually take advantage of that using using some um, using some sort of in, uh, some some instruments that allows us to benefit as rates fall down as rates fall. Uh, likewise, if we think rates are going to increase in the future because you know, we might have, you know, gotten on top of the coronavirus and the stimulus packages are working and the outlook for 2021, for example, is looking a lot brighter. We can actually change that position and potentially even in, um, and benefit from rising interest rates. So, again, that's, that's sort of a major bit of flexibility for us if, if we believe the uh, conditions are right to do so. Well, Brad, let's just hold that last thought. It was a beautiful thought. Recovery in 2020, <laughs> interest rates rising. Mate, thanks for joining us on the program. You're very welcome. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Paul. And that was Brad Dunn from Daintree Capital. Paul, what's your best guess about what's going to happen in the market? Look, I think we're not too far away, Peter, from uh, – I think we may have actually seen a little bit of a bottom, but mm-hmm. we're in a bit of a bear market, so rallies are going to be sold into. But yeah. the market wants to see – I think, as Chris said, we need to see that – that uh, the curve on on the virus is, um, you know, uh, easing, yeah. and then confidence that the U.S. in particular. It's not. It's not about so much about Australia. It's more about the yeah, US. U.S. That's really what's going to drive this recovery, right? So you've got to be very focused on on the U.S. first. See what's going on there. You're getting really mixed messages from. President Donald. Uh, and he's, he's gambling, isn't he? He's, he's gambling. He's saying it all over by Easter, you know, yeah. once everyone back at work. That's, you know, I think the market's out, or the jury's out on just where we're at there. So yeah. uh, I think a bit more bumpiness from the US is my guess. Yeah. I, I, I think we've got 
both the central banks, the banks and the governments all doing the right thing. Now we have to see um, the virus data come off the boil. Uh, when that happens, the market will love it as that 11.3% rise um, today actually showed. But uh, going forward, let's keep our fingers crossed. Mate, thanks for joining us. Quentin time! Quentin time! <laughs>